Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Seasteading Today podcast, where we speak with entrepreneurs and researchers who are making the dream of seasteading a reality. The Seasteading Today podcast. Stop arguing and start seasteading. Hello, Seasteaders. Today, I am happy to welcome Connor Furmender, the Director of Business Development for Ocean Builders. He is also a three-time startup founder, ocean tech enthusiast, aspiring freediver, and ambassador laureate. Welcome, Connor. Thank you. Thank you. Very happy to be here, Carly. Well, Connor, so we did an interview with Grant from Ocean Builders a few years ago, but a lot has changed. One thing is that you've joined the team and you have some startup experience. So tell us a little bit about your experience and how you came to work for Ocean Builders. Yeah, no, good question. I, I love this one. So I'll keep the background story as concise, as brief as I can, and we can dig into different parts of it if you want. But I think it starts around my, I don't know, sometime when I was going to Florida Gulf Coast University, when I was living in South Florida, in the South Fort Myers area. And they had just started working on an entrepreneur program. And at the time, it was very coincidental. I had actually joined up with one of my, one of my good friends who wanted to start a clothing line. <laughs> it's funny how many startups start out with something as simple and just you want to start like a merch brand or something like that. And so we did ours actually around the, at the time that like we're talking 2015, 26, 2016, and the cannabis industry was just seeing a lot of regulation at scale, at least here in the U.S. and in some other parts of the world. And so we were doing a clothing line that was revolved around elegant, nice merchandise that we could really tie to medical cannabis. And we were going to give back a lot of the revenue to research. And it was a very interesting project that eventually turned into working on an event and talent management company because we sponsored an event, fell in love with event management. That then evolved into managing some artists, hosting them in concert. We opened a recording studio. We started an independent record label. So it was a lot of the merchandise then led into a lot of the entertainment world. And it's funny because when we start talking about ocean builders, you'll hear how that plays a role seven, eight years later. But yeah, so we started that in school. And then around the same time, there was a small business that was looking for an intern from Florida Gulf Coast University. They were a t-shirt, screen print and embroidery. But what I really liked about their business model was they gave back three to 5% on every order to a nonprofit. And so it was this social enterprise model, you could say. And I really fell in love with it. And so out of everyone in our class at FGCU, in the business program, this one professor that I had, Professor Stout, recommended myself to, his name is Sam, the founder and CEO. We're good friends to this day. Long story short with that is I joined the company as an intern. By the time I left, I had taken on the sales manager role, client manager role, and we scaled down the team a little bit. We were a little oversized, so we had to scale down the team, be a little bit more lean and mean. I think we were doing like 350000 in revenue when I joined, and when I left, we were doing seven hundred fifty to 800000 in revenue. Brought them to their first profitable year, a little over $2 million in total sales. What came out of that was, I think, a big catalyst or launch pad, whatever you want to call it, to where I am now. Because another thing that we did was we doubled the nonprofit portfolio from 45 to about 80, 85 nonprofit partners. Again, these are the ones that were receiving the kickback on every order. And in that, I fell in love with the education nonprofit sector, just being a mentor, working with students, seeing students build their own businesses. And in hindsight, in an interesting way, it, I think it helped me because it was an opportunity to frequently talk about what I was working on and explain it to young students in a way that they understood it real quick without being overly technical. And I think that then played a role with pitching to investors, 
explaining it to friends and family and just the general audience. So I wanted to ask you, what about the startup phase? What about starting a new venture is attractive to you? Oh, man. It being new, it being an opportunity to create, it being an opportunity to solve a problem, speak to new people, more people. It's without a doubt, it's a love for the game. It's a journey, not the destination. It's one of those cliches and there's a thorough satisfaction in going from zero to one, one to two, and then just seeing something formulate, helping people. Yeah. That's what definitely drives me to build businesses. One of the many things, at least a few things. Sure. And then you're working on building these relationships. How do you learn about seasteading? Yeah. So that was, yeah, I started digressing on my story there before. So I guess the end of that story is I built a few businesses. I helped build the entrepreneur program at FGCU. They now have an accelerator program. And that was just a lot of my incubation phase, if you would, as an entrepreneur. And I got to do it at my university. So that was the moral of my story I was trying to get at. Built a couple of businesses, helped scale a couple of small businesses during the time. So end of that story. Now moving into the recent years. Last year, 2021, I wanted to move out of the education technology space as my full-time thing. And I wanted to completely immerse myself into something that was true to heart for me ever since I was a kid. And that was the ocean environment. That was the environment in general, but more specifically the aquatic and ocean environment. And I just dove into a lot of research in some new ocean technology, tried understanding what the status of the industry was, what the projection of it looked like, who was involved in it, who were the major players in it, who were the early startups and engineers and scientists behind what was going on. And it was in the midst of all that research and documentary watching, I came across the Seasetting Institute first, actually. And I just started doing a lot of digging into you all before I reached out. And I'm pretty sure I read and watched everything on the website, everything on YouTube. I really appreciated and saw the vision for what was being built within the Sea Setting Institute and all of those that are around it. And in that digging, of course, is when I found Ocean Builders. And at a time, I thought they were the same thing. I think it was maybe after a conversation with one of you that I came to realize, no, they're two separate things. And then after that, I, of course, then I dove into some searching into Ocean Builders specifically and came across this incubator. And this is where it, now it starts getting all interesting and full circle, like help build an incubator and was part of an incubator at the school. It's like, I've been through five or six accelerators in my time, including Y Combinator Startup School and a lot of different other localized ones and regional ones. And so I, I was like, incubator, I'm all about it. Let's see what they got going on. And what I submitted was not something to what they had listed, what Ocean Builders had listed on their incubator catalog, if you would. But I submitted an idea that I wanted to work on, which was essentially an underwater mapping drone that would never have to return to shore or really be in a human interface with much because it would have an underwater recharging station offshore. Lo and behold, a lot of this technology is in the very early stages, not the UUVs, the drones, the subsea mapping drones are nothing novel, but the underwater recharging is something that some new companies are starting to work on or at least commercialize. And so a lot of opportunity for it. And as I think a lot of people know, the, we hardly know much about the ocean environment, about the ocean at scale, I should say. We understand quite a bit about the ocean environment, which is a very general statement to say, but at scale, no. And so massive opportunity and so massive problem to solve. And so submitted that to Ocean Builders, got a response from Grant. And then I know we're going to want to save that for more of a question related to how I got it with involved with Ocean Builders specifically. So I'll pause that there. But this is then when I started conversating with you and Alex and then Joe, and it was amazing. I think one of the first things too, is I was on one of the calls, a conference call. I think it's when you kicked off campaign or you know something. 
And Did you beat and, your scholarship campaign maybe last year? No, I think I came after that. I think it was the flagging. It was announcing that, yes, the flagging certification. And so you all then sent an email saying we're open to feedback on the presentation deck. And I was like, I've pitched a lot of VCs, a lot of investors before. If they're open to feedback, I'll share it. I think I sent like an essay of an email, which was in complete just good intention of saying, look, at the end of the day, I think there's a lot of opportunity here. I also took it as an opportunity for myself to get involved in this world and got a response from Joe. And that just then has led to a lot of cooperativity with collaborating on the fundraising and getting the money together for the flagging and then some other things. But yeah, that's, I guess, the long-winded answer of how <laughs> I got involved and how the whole entrepreneurial background has led up to this. Yeah. Just to be clear, you don't have to do a lot of work to get involved with this, especially when you come with project ideas of your own. But we really appreciated you bringing your knowledge. And of course, it helps when you get the vision. I think your research, having looked at all our videos and understanding our purpose and our vision, and then being able to bring that constructive criticism, that's so helpful. But that's a pretty high standard for volunteers, just for anyone out there who's thinking about volunteering. That's a high standard. Just email us, volunteer at seasteading.org, and we'll definitely welcome you as a volunteer. Okay, great. So you're helping the Seasteading Institute. I know Joe was very appreciative of your feedback on his presentation and on a couple of presentations since then too. And so then you see Ocean Builders, you're already knowledgeable about what they're doing, but you were like, Ocean Builders needs me. <laughs> you, you were like, I got to focus my time on Ocean Builders and step back from volunteering for the Seasteading Institute. So what happened to inspire that? So... Yeah, that's where life just became completely surreal and in a dream. So I definitely appreciate the comment of Ocean Builders needs me, but I humbly think it was the other way around. I needed Ocean Builders and it was, so I don't want to get too much into the background of the story of the decision, but it was one of the toughest decisions of my life to take on the role of Ocean Builders. It was not because I didn't believe in what was going on. It was just the position of my personal life at the time. It was a commitment. It was, yeah, it was, I had in front of me three options forfeit full-time my own startup because at the time I had to go raise some funds in order to keep moving and keep paying for myself and some of our team members. And I firmly believe you should not, not fundraise when it's a matter of needing and begging for it. That's the absolute worst time. And so that's the position we were in and I was not comfortable fundraising. I said, you know what, we need to reel it in, scale up how many hours you're working on your other jobs that are giving you some income. I need to do the same because at the time I was strictly my ed tech startup. And so I said, okay. And at the time there was a research, an international research company. I think I can say it because I don't think there's any problem saying it. It was Robbins Research International. Tony Robbins I had been communicating with them for a couple of years and was just waiting for the right time to work out. A couple of roles they wanted to get me into, I was interested in. And long story short with that is there's a very beautiful, nice multi-figure salary contract ready for my signature. And... Then, of course, I have this opportunity with Ocean Builders. What I did, so I hopped on a call with Grant, and he says, you got to come down, check out what we got going on. I'm like, all right. I just left Turks and Caicos. I spun right back around. I went down to Panama, and I stayed there. He let me stay at the incubator house for a few days. And the first morning I was there, I was woken up by Grant at 8 a.m. being introduced to Rudy, the co-founder and president. He's like, here's Rudy. They're going on a boat to scout a potential location for the pod. Want to go scuba diving? And I'm like, I'm just waking up. And so I cannot begin to describe how much of a literal dream come true and goal of mine. 
I've always, so I went to school originally for marine biology. It didn't work out. I ended up graduating with an entrepreneur degree. I was the first student in it, but I always loved marine science. I just, I guess I was an academic, said, you're not a scientist kid. So I didn't do well in the test and it's just whatever. Here I am now. And I always wanted to go into the field, out on the boat, go collect some data, go do some research, take film. And I was like, it's like, fuck yeah, I'll go with you. So we get on the boat. I'm standing on the side. I grew up on a lake too. I grew up, I had my license driving a boat since I was a kid. I've been a scuba diver for a long time. So sometimes this is, none of this was new to me. Again, this is all a dream come true because this is just a grouping of everything of my life that I've done as a kid and getting to this part. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is from the very beginning of being in Panama, it was a dream come true from being a kid. And so we ended that trip, me and Grant spoke and he's like, look, maybe we can make something happen. I'll never forget his words. He said, I have a tendency to make budgets happen, even if there is not one where it needs to be. I'm like, okay, all right there. So I left and this is a Saturday I left. I get back. Monday, I have to have the signature to the Robins. I have to get it back to them. And I'm like, okay, what am I doing? I'm not doing full time for my startup. Am I going to take this very stable for the first time in my startup life after five years? It was like financial stability. And I was like, that doesn't sound too bad. I can work on a startup on the side and have this stability for some time. I'm getting older. And so I was like, okay, there's security. But then I left Panama. And then again, I get back on a Saturday, got assigned by Monday. Now it's Sunday afternoon. I get an email from Grant and he's like, all right, kid. So we just started talking. We go back and forth. We jump on a call on Monday morning, Monday afternoon. We talk numbers, we talk this and that, we talk details. And I hadn't on my notes written down what it would have taken for me to take it because it, it was it probably one of the biggest risks of my life. It was giving up my own startup. It was giving up massive security, but it was the reward was the biggest. And it's living out a dream that you've had since you were a kid and I think serving a greater purpose. And so I told him, let's do it. FaceTime the other company and I'm like, I'm so sorry. And we're, luckily, we've been able to maintain that relationship. I still have my ed tech going in the way background. Our engineers is working at it at a very slow pace. And as you already know, Carly, I'm full steam ahead, 110%, 100 miles an hour with ocean builders. And I guess the long story here I'm trying to say is it was, like I said, one of the hardest decisions of my life because there was so much happening in such a different route I had to take that's now impacted where my life trajectory has gone. But it being a massive risk has led to one of the most fulfilling, if it's, it's not one of, it's the most fulfilling experience I've ever had in my entire life. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that's very useful for folks because we do have a vision. Seasteading is the future. The next phase of humanity. Absolutely. And, but at this stage, each individual has to understand the personal risks and trade-offs of doing that. So I think it's helpful to hear stories about like how people come to those decisions and oh, it's, it's farthest thing from easy, hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. It's been the hardest thing I've ever done. And what I also love about the position I am in, and I don't say that by like, yo, your role, but like the atmosphere, the scenario that, that I'm in is, and this is, I love Grant. I never had to take off the startup founder entrepreneur hat. No, I'm not a co-founder of Ocean Builders. Nonetheless, though, I'm now being, and we can dig into more of the details, but I'll just say going from applicant to the incubator to now the director of the incubator and managing all the partnerships globally, managing, I'm leading our whole launch event for the entire company. And we'll talk about all those details, but he and the company has given me an opportunity to not forfeit my love and my ability to be an entrepreneur, to be a startup founder, because I get to still wear those hats just now within the Ocean Builders brand, within the name. And I'm a kid in a candy shop with our incubator of technology. We're building coral reefs, we're building drones where it's insane. And I guess that's another thing I should mention too, because a lot of 
So I, I get the question sometimes. They're like, wait, what happened to your startup? What happened to being a startup founder? What happened to being into this world of entrepreneurship? And I'm like, that's a fair question. That's a fair statement to say because I've gone from owning my own business and building it full time to now helping build somebody else's business. But again, with what you pointed out, and I think everyone is pretty well aware of the long-term game that needs to be played here with setting and offshore infrastructure and in ocean innovation in general. I mean, it's a very challenging climate and environment to innovate in. And so it's a long game in a lot of what you do. And I think at the end of the day, what's been amazing with ocean builders is also with what needs to happen in order to make what we're doing happen and at a commercial level and globally is there needs to be a lot of innovation, daily innovation. There needs to be a lot of new technology built, new technology innovated on. There needs to be a lot of problems solved and a lot of challenges overcome. And so that's an entrepreneur's heaven. That's just an entrepreneur's frontier. And so it's just endless opportunity for me to still be an entrepreneur and a startup founder within Ocean Builders. Wonderful. So when you signed on with Ocean Builders, about how long ago was that? Less than a year. November, very start of November. Okay. Very start of November. So it's been almost a year, eight, 10 months, something like that, right? Eight sure. Months, we'll go with that. We'll go with it. Yeah. Eight, eight months, I, nine months. That first day in, in Panama until now, sorry. that first day in Panama until now, how has Ocean Builders changed? I'm thinking in terms of the team that you're working with and the atmosphere in Panama. How much time do you spend in Panama face to face with those folks? Tell me a little bit about what's happened since you signed on. Wow, a lot. Oh my God. <laughs> it evolves every day and every week, but get both ends of the spectrum and then we can work in. So November 1st, end of October is when I got there for the first time, actually. Started with them beginning of November. I went right back after. And factory was just the size of the actual factory building. And for those who have any imagery or have been to the headquarters, you'll know what I mean. Like we're just exactly where the building infrastructure is, not anything that we've surrounded in now with. So it was just a single bay garage with the offices, wasn't painted. We didn't have the solar on it. Only the like molding was in production. I think one of the first steel spars was starting to go into the water and was being finished, which that took, I think they said like 11 months or I forget. I think it was about a year. Long time to get the first spar done. Long time. Like the first one in Panama. I want to respectively say, I saw this, but also more so heard it from those that were there before me, where there was some challenges at the factory and also just with some, I think, of the overall team members and overall communication and getting everyone, I think, on the same page because just everything was evolving so quickly. There needed to be, I think, some more, a little more, uh, I was, you know, say structure, but just communication across the board. We're a very remote team. But also then the idea of launch, I think was supposed to be April. It was just an idea at the time. And that was one of the reasons he brought me on was to build some of the technology in the incubator or build teams around the technology and uh, lead us to the event, lead us to the launch event. And so these were just all ideas. These were very early vision. What should this look like? Who are we going to work with for the event? Who are we going to invite? Just started thinking about, okay, we need to start launching. What do we, how do we do it? What do we do? All the questions. Some of the technology, I think only a couple projects, I think we're at the time we're in development. And there are a few partners, but some of them like some true partners, but it, I think it was still very much like true R&D. It was still very much still R&D. And it was a long time coming because what we're building has is, is never been built before. So that's where I think I, I run the time I had came on. So let's hear about what the factory is like now. Yes. Now, so factory size has about doubled. We've brought it, I guess it's hard to describe this because it's audio only, but 
more horizontal and more vertical, like forward and sideways, we've expanded. We have a whole massive steel department now, a couple spars in production. The EcoPod is nearly done. It's ready to go in the water here very soon. That's going to be shown at our launch. The C-Pod is almost done as well. That's going to be shown at our launch. So two models in very late stage of development, spars as well. When I say the spars, it's how they're installed, like the lower piping. If anyone sees our renders, our images, the pod is essentially the capsule that, that sits on top. And then the spar is essentially that pipe or that tube, that piling it sits on. And uh, have certainly locked down, I think, a lot of efficiency and communication and structure across the board. We got people all over the world in different marketing teams, sales team, tech team, et cetera, team, just all gears are turning full steam ahead, heading to launch, all working in sync. It's very beautiful. We have people in the marketing team now, so we're, we're back to marketing on social media. Blogs are going out all the time. Blogs we're always consistent with. We have a creative director now working on such high-level content, cinematic-level content. We've been doing sessions all over Panama, filming. We have a documentary crew down there now. Incubator, we've gotten, shoot, like 30 projects into development, and it's a lot of them in late stage of development. A lot of them going to be shown at our launch, demoed, showcased. 20 to 25 more partnerships, global partnerships, some academic institutions, engineering, manufacturing partnerships, NGOs, nonprofits. Yeah, it's like there's, I think, a clear switch has been flipped from R&D to commercially ready, like ready for a, a major like global network to pick us back up because I think we're ready to flip the script from what's been posted about us in the past. Yeah, that sounds like when you're talking about the sort of communication hiccups and then needing to grow the team. That sounds like normal startup growing pains. For and, sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. We still have them. We still have growing pains. Yeah. So what's the shift as far as like the life cycle of a startup? We'll talk about the launch event, but so this transition, what does it mean for ocean builders to be transitioning from this stage of R&D and now being able to have these units in the water that they can show people and start selling? What does that mean? Confident enough in our product to take people's money. <laughs> no, I'm just, uh, no, that you can look at it that way. You can definitely look at it that way. No, but the, I just said that as a funny answer. But the depth behind that answer is that we are beyond a point of testing out even the prototypes, the very first versions of it, and having the pods to a point of where we're happy and proud of deploying it to some of our first customers. And so that's the big switch that we're making now is that, okay, here we have these battle-tested prototypes. Obviously, you going to continue to battle-test them and test new technology and then We're going to very much incubate them in a way, and they're going to be very close to us in Panama. But we've also uh, gotten to a point, too, is having a fairly good understanding of how are we going to execute scale uh, production at scale when we have resorts or whatever. I don't want to maybe start calling out names. Maybe I, should, maybe I shouldn't say any names right now, but clients, resort chains, hotel chains, whoever it be, development agencies, corporations that will want to buy 5, 10, 20 of these for their resort, for their whatever installation, their community. We've gotten to a point of, okay, we know how we can fulfill an order like this. It's going to take time. It certainly is not going to be a flip of a switch either. I'll, I'll use examples like the Ford F-150 Lightning truck or even the Tesla. Like when a lot of these companies launch such a highly innovative product and what we're doing is ready to take deposits, ready to flip that switch to commercial production. That's just what we're going to have to do is now move to commercial production and then fulfill on the volume orders, which again, will take some time, but it'll be a very transparent experience for all clients understanding that when installation is going to happen, when this is being built, okay, when the capsule is being built, exterior, interior, et cetera. But I guess to sum it up is it's R&D to commercial because we're, the pods are ready because we are 
a lot of our technology around what we need to accommodate is ready from our drones, uh, drone delivery to the coral gardens. It's like the whole ecosystem. I don't really like using that word much anymore because it's just such a buzzword at this point, but that's a good way to describe it. It is an ecosystem of technology services and products that support this new offshore oceanfront style of living. Yeah. So you've mentioned the incubator. It, it's been interesting for me to watch, you know, I'd, I'd look at the blog and anyone who's curious about what is happening in Panama, the blog has a lot of information about all of the, yeah. the sort of sub projects that go into creating the pod. And when I think about that first prototype back in Thailand in 2019, how basic it was. And now considering bringing a product where your layperson can be comfortable on a floating vessel and safe on a floating vessel. And you see some of those technologies like AI lifeguard is one of the things that's posted on the blog. How do you help to support those kinds of, basically you want to be cruise ship ready. Think of your average cruise ship tourist. You want to be able to provide an experience for someone with no level of maritime safety or how to sail a boat. Like it's all, it has to be consumer ready. And all of those yeah. little sub products, all of those little like pieces of technology that go into this huge puzzle of just a floating home. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming for me. <laughs> yeah. When you look at it, a lot of what the incubator has produced are potential subsidiaries or their own standalone entities. Our 3D reefs project, 3D coral project, using a 3D printer that, that prints with clay and then using that as a substrate or the skeleton to then outplant actual coral on top of it. It's one of the, if not the most natural substrate to an artificial reef that can be used. And there's a lot of incredibly talented people that we've been blessed with getting ourselves involved in this project, academic institutions, NGOs, marine scientists, you name it, from around the world. And this alone, who knows what service opportunities, product opportunities, or just in general, beachheads to new markets, creator, a product as a creator of a new market. There's just so much innovation to be had in the maritime sector in ocean technology. I firmly believe that in the next couple of years, more closer to maybe three to maybe closer to four or five years, three years, we're going to be seeing so many headlines nonstop about ocean tech, blue tech. We'll see if the word blue tech sticks. I've seen that quite a bit. Blue accelerators, this and that, blue frontier, but we'll see if that sticks. I think so. But ocean technology, just to be clear, I think it's going to see a similar attention that climate tech has seen over the past year and carbon tech is now seeing a lot of. Yeah. Tell me about this launch event. There's an event on August 22nd, and that's an online product launch. And then in September, there's an event in Panama. So what's happening with the online product launch? Yes, August 22nd, online product launch. So we were originally going to do our Panama launch then. We pushed that to later in September. We'll talk about that. But we said it was like, you know what, we should still do like an online product launch, something that lets and announces people that, hey, our pods, going back to this conversation before that, hey, we're now a commercial company, like we're ready to accept the pods as we've gotten to this point of being commercial ready. That's really what this event is meant to communicate. It's going to be released as far as Eastern time zone goes, probably like extremely early, like before 6 a.m. probably, because we do want to make it a possibility for people globally to see it on August 22nd. And so if we release it in the morning, 
or super early Eastern, like it'll be early afternoon for like people like Asia. And then the rest of the day, the rest of the world will start waking up, see it. Our world will start waking up and eventually see it. So anyway, August 22nd, it'll be available for everyone around the world to be able to watch it. So whoever you are in the world from Singapore to French Polynesia to Mexico to Canada, you'll be able to see it that day. I, I don't know if I should give too much information. It's going to be a good 30 minutes. So be prepared because when this podcast is being released, you all are going to have an opportunity to still go sign up and go watch it. So when you head to our website and just put your email in, also just put it on your calendar, mark it as August 22nd. And so I, just, I want everybody to be prepared though. Hey, you're going to be able to see it in your respective time zone at some point, whether it's morning, midday or evening. And we'll put a link to the sign up yeah. in our show notes. Oh, sweet, sweet. Yeah. And yeah. So anyway, I guess going back to the context of it, it's again, yes, we are going to be teasing a lot of the making of process of our pods. Like the behind the scenes, like what it all look like to make the pods. It's going to be very beautiful. We're going to tease a lot of this lifestyle in Panama, not just Panama, but this tropical offshore lifestyle. We're going to tease a little bit about that. And it's going to be a lot of really cool content. We're going to, of course, a lot of our executives are going to be featured in it. And we're going to do a good job of not just showcasing enough of the pods and sharing a lot of the work that's been done, but we're also then going to package it in a way and service it. I don't, I don't want to give away the number yet because I'm not sure when we're going to release it in the campaign, but we're going to be accepting deposits at a very affordable amount, refundable deposits at a very affordable amount because we want to lower the barrier for as many people to get on the wait list and to secure their spot in line for these as much as possible. Of course, we're accepting full. There's going to be a lot of clients that we're moving immediately into the payment plan with. And on the payment plan, like I mentioned earlier in this podcast, is a very engaging, very transparent one where it's broken up into multiple payments into escrow and money is only pulled at certain times to then build upon something. And it's very, we invite you down to experience the build process. It's going to be a very VIP like experience for people ready to move right into a payment plan. But those that just want to get on the wait list, even whether you want to be someone who I'm buying one to turn into my own rental property so I can run my own Airbnb out of this thing. That's going to be a lot of people want to do that. And so again, lowering the barrier with low refundable deposits. And that's what's going to be accepted at that August 22nd. We're going to give all the info you need throughout that product launch. It's going to have all of the packed with needed info, super clear, super concise, but super packed of it and a lot of beautiful video. And what I'm super excited about is we're finally transitioning away from mostly renders, photorealistic animated renders that are goddamn gorgeous and sexy. Shout out to Saeed, our 3D render artist, and Grant usually is the mastermind behind him. But at the end of the day, it's like, finally, like we're now at a point where we have so much stuff happening and moving into late stage production and showcase and demo ready that it's like, People like Jared are leading content creation and creative direction on real life footage now. Like it's the real life pod. It's the real life drone. It's all happening. It's all coming to fruition. So that's also what this online launch is going to do is be a lot of that of just, hey, here we are in Panama and here everything is that you've been waiting for the past three years. We're ready to move. Yeah, people are definitely impatient and want to know. They want to know what it really looks like in real life. They want to yeah, know how yes. much it costs. So this is it's a huge moment for seasteading as well as ocean builders. Yeah, pricing. I'm glad you brought that up because I should also clarify not just deposits, but pricing on what things are going to cost in each optional upgrade and all the smart technology pricing will be released. So that's been a long time coming. I know a lot of people, shout out to Beth, who's super patient, our customer support, who's always responding usually with, sorry, like this is the current price, but it's, it's just a ballpark. And we always have to say subject to change up 20%, but we're it's just about lockdown. And I know Grant and I and a lot of our team were very excited to finally announce to the world what the true pricing is and release it publicly. And once again, just like deposits, both amount rental per night on the pod, at least let me clarify disclaimer. This is when we announced the rental night per pod, that's going to be for the first couple pods that were operating the rentals. 
when people buy from, let's just say Wyndham buys 20 of these things and they put them out in their new resort out in Phuket, Thailand, there's only so much we can say about how much they charge per night for them. So, but the rental operations that we'll be doing initially in Panama for the first handful of months, for the first phase of where we're servicing our market, we'll be announcing that number and it's going to be a very affordable amount. And then for the per unit amount and then the optional upgrades, they're affordable luxuries. I will say that. I can say that much that they are meant to be affordable luxuries. When I usually tell people the ballpark numbers, even though they know they're subject to change, their jaws drop. And I'm like, Mike, don't tell me like that. Like, you, what do you think? It's expensive. And then they're like, no, like you need to charge more. They're like, why are you charging so low? And we're like, it's just not low in the grand scheme of things because we still want to do attract a global audience and we need to be accessible. Yeah. Accessible to a global audience and recognize that, look, at the end of the day, not everyone has X, Y, and Z money. And maybe a lot of people have are in this range of expendable travel expenses, whatever bucket you want to call that, that they can put towards these kind of rental things. But then even those who want to purchase them as timeshares, as vacation homes, or again, our enterprise level clients who want to buy them in volume. Affordable luxury was a lot of the motive. It came up when you're talking about how the prices are subject to change, like moving into manufacturing phase. Do you expect to see there might be some changes made as you learn through the manufacturing, if we do something slightly different, it's more efficient. Or maybe even just like being on the pods and experiencing. I would imagine that there are probably going to be some changes as you gain experience and information. So I think that's a really hard concept for people to understand. I think that's for most of us who have not been part of a startup or have not been part of a manufacturing startup, a startup that's actually building physical items in the world or who have not been part of like a maritime environment. Like that's a whole other set of challenges, like building things that are going to float on the ocean. That's a very different environment. So you need to take in information and experience and build and see what works. And sometimes that changes things. You know, I know some of the feedback I get, people get frustrated with having to wait or not being able to know. I wonder if you have anything to say about just this is the nature of creating a new thing in the world. Yeah. Oh my God. I could talk about this forever. Yeah. You know what? When we say we're moving from R&D to commercial, it's like, that doesn't mean R&D doesn't stop. It, iteration is forever. If you're not iterating, I think iteration is a very comparable word to innovation. You can look at iteration in a way of saying, okay, at one point you should stop iterating on something because the product or service is so routinely functional. It's a well-oiled machine. It doesn't need continuous iteration. Maybe innovation is then the word that steps in beyond that. But look, there was a lot of iteration to get to that point. And yeah, just because we're moving from R&D to commercial doesn't mean R&D will stop and iteration will continue. We're just at a point where we've iterated enough where we're like, all right, if you wait to launch when you think you're perfect, you waited to launch way too late. If there's anything I learned from Y Combinator, that's one of the things that I've learned is you don't wait to launch till you think you're perfect. That's not how things work in startups. And most often, if not nearly always, I'm not going to say always, but nearly always, a lot of times, certainly the majority, the initial product or service that a company launches, a startup launches is not what scales them is not what becomes the mainstream product or service that the general consumer comes to know on a mainstream adopted level. And keep in mind, we're talking like these are days where hardly anyone in the world, not hardly anyone knows about them. Co companies will launch like when only their local community knows about them. And so that's when I say like their very first product or service that they launched when they're in that very early phase. It's no, that's not what eventually gets them to win. A, like a, a U.S. market or a Latin American market or a North American market now is a consumer of theirs. It's no, I can almost guarantee you there is a there's a difference, a massive difference in the product and service from when it was mom's garage or apartment office 
to your North American market, the massive difference in your products and services. Anyway, yeah, I think it's as a business owner, it's inevitable. But I think then from the consumer's perspective, it's just also recognizing that, look, it's for you. It's for the consumer. It's like we're not stopping because we just continuously get such good feedback. And the more feedback we get, the more accurate it becomes on what we iterate on. And so just continuous iteration for us just results in a better product and user experience service and user experience for the general consumer. So that little bit of patience and that little bit of understanding up front, I think, is going to go a long way. And in the case of our pods, I guess I have two other answers to that is it's 100 percent. The pods are going to be iterated on after we release them as people actually start renting them and living in them. The amount of feedback we're going to get when we have people that are continuously renting them and we're going to have the advanced version of the guest log where guests will write notes and stuff when you say like an Airbnb. No, we're going to have a fine-tuned, precise feedback system where we can constantly get because we're going to need it. The day, the night is going to come where we're getting the message on WhatsApp or email like tablets not working because it's all smart technology and technology sometimes will break. And we have a lot of fail safes in place, but at the end of the day, it's technology will be technology. And so we need to be prepared to support our customers and fix whatever does break. And if the lack of Wi-Fi is the worst problem you have staying on the C-Pod, then that's pretty good (laughs) because you can get that on a hotel Um, on land. (laughs) Yeah. If I could just build on the first part too, like getting feedback from the personnel that rent and buy these It goes back to what I said in the beginning of this conversation. We've built these to be very modular. We want to hear, we want to get enough feedback so we can start making a role that we're going to soon be hiring for a pod personalizer where you can sit with one-on-one and almost like an account manager, but to our tailored approach, whereas you sit down and like you discuss what smart technology you want. Do you want the gesture control? Where in the room, where in the house do you want it? What lighting or, or what coral garden do you want it to look like? The walls or your interior finishing? Do you want this wood finishing or this boutique, fin- whatever it is, it's going to be such a high end experience. And gosh, I hope for that say customers are okay with us reiterating because again, it's just all in the means of making it more personalized to each and every person that is in these. So it's, you don't feel like you're in like a cookie cutter experience, that it's a unique experience through and through. And then my other answer to this is more of a longer term answer. And it's not long answer, just longer term in the company sense of look, Our pods, I truly believe they're going to be extraordinarily successful. I truly believe they're going to be, gosh, I don't even, I'm not even trying to put a cap to the potential to these things, (laughs) but I will say this, we're going to build other offshore infrastructure. We're going to build a lot of other ocean technology. I would not be surprised if it's not the CPOD or the EcoPod that takes us ocean builders to the global market scenario, like I was describing before, from the garage to the North American apartment. It might not be a pod. It might be this amazing offshore recreational infrastructure or viable infrastructure for the offshore airport that people in San Diego have wanted to build for a long time now. Who knows? I have some idea. and I think we all have some idea, but it's like, at the end of the day, what goes mainstream and what goes, what reaches such a level of uh, adaption that scale is definitely going to be an iteration on of on what is released on August 22nd. All right. So do you want to say anything more generally about being a leader as an entrepreneur and what's important for people who want to enter into this business, this brand new industry, what's important to know now and what's important to know you can't know yet? Wow. Good questions. Amazing questions. All right. If we have time, I'll come back to the leadership one because that is something that is very close to heart with me. And I can definitely dig into some things with that. But I guess I want to go off the end of your question. And it's the first thing that came to my mind when you just asked that was 
my experience with getting involved in the maritime industry, whether it's on a startup level or just me as someone who is experiencing, who is a part of this industry. And it's that, I think I mentioned this earlier, that I went into Florida Gulf Coast University into college for marine biology. My whole life, I was going to be a marine biologist. It was my goal. I always wanted to be a marine biologist. And tests and academia proved otherwise that I did not belong. <laughs> but it's seven years later, whatever that, yeah, seven, eight years later, think something like that. Here I am now. And sure, you can go off on the path of saying, I can certainly talk all day long about grit, how grit was a massive component in getting here now, seven years later, when academia said I didn't belong. But what I want to dig into about this response is there is, we keep saying it, there's so much opportunity, so much innovation, so much challenge in the ocean environment and ocean technology in, in marine science. There's room for you, whatever it is you want to build whatever you're interested in getting involved in, wherever in the world you want to do it. And I think in whatever role you want to try to play, there's room for you. I am no true engineer. I am no true scientist. I don't have that background. But here I am leading teams of engineers, of marine architects, of marine scientists, very grateful. I'm, when I'm sitting around the table and in the rooms and on the calls with them, I'm like, I probably don't belong here. <laughs> But it's like, you know, everyone does, everyone plays a massive role. And maybe for the leaders, for me, it's helping us navigate to this vision that we all share and helping execute on it and bringing all the brains together into one functioning product or service. But at the end of the day, it just justifies, I think, that you don't have to be a scientist or an ocean engineer to help build and help contribute to this next blue frontier, this next phase for you, for humanity that you're talking about. And as an entrepreneur, as someone who is just, I'm not going to say just, but as someone who focuses or is the business side or on the engineering side or on the creative design side, but you're still very much an entrepreneur, you're a creator, you're a builder. There's so much that needs to be built. Like what we're saying, call it starting a business, call it creating a project, call it whatever you want to call it. Things need to be created, built, started, formed, forged, pioneered, all of the above. And it's going to take a village. It's going to take the whole world to succeed on the potential that's there with the ocean environment. So yes, I think that's the main thing that came to my mind that I wanted to say. And the leadership, I'll just briefly follow it on with, because I love leadership and I do believe leadership can be learned. I believe that there are natural characteristics that may supplement one to be a bit of a natural born leader. Nonetheless, though, I think nurturing without a doubt, plays a massive and critical role in the longevity of that and where that leadership is applied to. Because you can, I think, have strong leadership skills, but those be channeled into the completely wrong direction and for the wrong purposes. But So I, I want to be clear, because yes, in thinking about leadership, because you made some comments about that before our conversation today. Now, there's leadership in terms of being an entrepreneur, you're starting something new, it's your vision, and you have to get people to to work with you and give them something in return for their trust in you. And so I hear what you're saying about nurturing and having a role in that. I also was wondering, as far as entrepreneurs being leaders worldwide, like being a leader. In oh, terms of yeah. Showing them. Yeah, go ahead. What do you yeah. What do you think about that? Oh, <laughs> well, that yeah, I got a reference. I want to. Oh, let me make sure I say it right. It's called Startup Communities. And it's Brad Feld. And Brad Feld is one of the very first, I think he might have been the founder or just was one of the first pioneers of Techstars. Techstars, like Y Combinator. Oh, okay, I do they, know Y Combinator, yes. yes. They came before Y Combinator, actually. And so they have pioneered, one of the pioneers in what an accelerator structure is. And Brad Feld wrote a book called Startup Communities. And 
what this book explains is the role that entrepreneurs play in the world on a grand scheme, I think, to what your context of your question was. And he uses a word that we are leaders. And then you have the feeders. And the feeders are academic institutions, governments, communities, regional communities. And really, essentially, what this is describing is entrepreneurs have a very unique position and role and responsibility, let me say, to help push humanity forward. Entrepreneurship, of course, is made up of a lot of diversity, maybe whatever meets the VC statistics. And I understand that things like the white male gets maybe funded VC more, gets more VC funding opportunities. I understand those statistics are very true. But the underlying of what I'm trying to say is entrepreneurship is diverse. It's present in every country, in every community of, of every gender and whatever demographic you might want to say. Entrepreneurship is present. Creation is present. And so that poses such a unique opportunity to help innovate on every area of life, everything that needs to be done, built, the food that goes into your mouth, the bed you sleep on. At one point, all started with someone creating, building, starting that product, that service, even in between it, the transit companies, the freight guys who are running the trucking companies. Entrepreneurship is everywhere. Products and services are everywhere and they're created by someone. And again, it's such a unique opportunity and responsibility to be the backbone of humanity being pushed forward and never staying stagnant. That's not just a country and an individual, but it's just as a species. And we, we procreate. And that's the unique opportunity we have. And, and in order to, I think, execute on that, it's important that entrepreneurs be leaders. And so in then steps in this concept of the government and academic institution and communities, neighborhoods being the feeders, whereas out of academic institutions need to be talent fed into these entrepreneurs, into these companies, processes, research and development through academic institutions fed through into these unique roles of entrepreneurs, governments, tax incentives, economic development zones fed into the opportunity and the chance of an entrepreneur succeeding and giving them back to that local economy and community. And then of course, just the community in the neighborhood doing what it can to keep, I think it's people safe and putting itself in a position of opportunity of being exposed to entrepreneurship, to creation, to business. So it gives opportunities for maybe even under-resourced communities where there may sometimes be a very clear end to what a career path or what that local community may be able to take you to, but it's entrepreneurship that helps these people get out of that community and go truly put what they're capable of to a much larger impact on a global scale. I think that's our time. I think that was a very nice thought to end our conversation on today. Is there anything that our audience needs to know about how to find Ocean Builders, uh, find you, and sign up for the product launch. Yes. So oceanbuilders.com, we've spent a lot of time building that website and adding nice detail in there. So it tells a story. So when I do send you to the website, I do promise it's not me just trying to send you off onto a landing page and you figure it out. It truly does, I think, give a beautiful story to what we're building and gives a lot of the specs to what it is. Answers a lot of questions on there that this podcast may have brought, like, how does it work? How does it float? What about hurricanes? What about sharks? We answer a lot of that on our website, and it tells a nice story visually. So I do recommend that. Now, I also recommend checking out the incubator. Again, there's room for everyone in, in what we're doing. And a lot of our approach we take is very open source. We recognize that a community needs to be built around this industry. And so check out our incubator because you'll see the catalog of different projects that are either in development already or a lot of them are early stage, haven't even entered development, just in research. And we could use 
project managers, scientists, architects, engineers, chemists, on and on. And let me add there, if for open source projects, the Seasteading Institute has a scholarship to help cover costs yes. if you to travel to Panama, to stay in Panama, or if you're working remotely, it can we can help with some income there. So yes, if you're working on an open source project with the incubator, there is some funding available to help. Amazing. And I encourage anyone to take advantage of that if it fits, because I know a few of students and young professionals who are involved in some of our projects, I know are sponsored through that. And it's definitely helped them out a ton. So yeah, so check out the incubator, apply to it, choose a project or multiple projects that you're interested in that ties to your background or your pursuits. We set up the application very nicely. You can select exactly which ones you want to apply to. And then it'll be me receiving that email and we'll have a nice conversation. And we'll go from there. And and otherwise, you can reach me at Connor, C-O-N-N-O-R at OceanBuilders.com. So I'm cool with taking emails. And then August 22nd. So basically, you can go to our website and just add your email to the newsletter. You can either just wait for the pop-up to come up or much quicker. And my suggestion is just go to the hamburger menu pop-up on the side and you'll see newsletter and you can just navigate directly to it and just add your email. And so while it's the newsletter pop-up and while it'll say newsletter, that is going to register you in our subscriber list. That's going to then receive the online launch campaign no notifications. And then, of course, receive access to it on August 22nd. And you know what? By the time this is all even happening in, in August, we may have probably just changed the wording on the website where maybe it doesn't even say a newsletter. It may just say actually sign up for online product launch. So if it says that, look for that too. Look for just sign up for online product launch. It'll be very clear on our website. You will make sure you receive all the information. And then again, wherever you are in the world, from Singapore to the Gold Coast to us in Panama and Hawaii, you're going to be able to see it on the date of August 22nd. And I think I also would just want to say, watch every minute of it. You don't want to miss a second of that video, of that launch event. It's going to be something special it's from the very beginning. Like you don't want to miss the start and you want to stay to the very end until we log off. <laughs> it's going to be incredible. So we look forward to seeing you there and definitely reach out to me if you have any questions. All right. Thank you so much, Connor. Awesome. It's my pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. The Seasteading Today podcast is produced and edited by Alexander T. Clayton. Your host is Carly Jackson. You can send feedback and questions to podcast at seasteading.org. If you would like to support the podcast and the Seasteading mission, go to seasteading.org slash donate. If you'd like to know more about seasteading, read the book, Seasteading, How Floating Nations Will Restore the Environment, Enrich the Poor, Cure the Sick, and Liberate Humanity from Politicians by Joe Quirk. Please be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast, and we'll see you on the sea.